So I thought we'd start off in uh, Psalm 15 this morning. 15. I would uh, read the theme of John, and we won't dwell on the theme this morning, but it's found in uh, John 20, uh, verse 31. I'm going to read uh, 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we know that there's three points that uh, John wants to make. He wants us to understand, know who Christ is. So understanding um, can be head knowledge or it can be uh, a heart knowledge. That's kind of the way we describe knowledge. 
or it can be um, academic, or it can be experiential. Right? So experiential knowledge is uh, uh, is a kind of knowledge that is a result of uh, being in that reality. Right? I'm trying to think of a good way of saying it without going back to Genesis. So um, that's the kind of knowledge that John wants us to have. He wants us to know experientially that this is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, and that he's the Son of God. So wants to help us clearly understand and know who Jesus is. And then that should change us, because when you come into contact with Jesus experientially, it changes you. It does one of two things. It either draws you into communion with him, believe and trust or it causes you to push away and the, the example that uh, um, John uses a lot is about light and darkness there are those who want to dwell in the dark they don't want to be near the light Jesus is the light so that's the kind of response that you would expect uh, universally either embracing uh, and I, I use the word communion or rejecting. And we saw that as uh, John was progressing through the public ministry of Jesus, those were the responses that we saw documented in, in the face of incredible miracles, right? So John said, you know, there's a lot of miracles I could have written, but these I wrote so that you'll know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you'll have eternal life. So the final thing that John wants us to understand is that there is actual life in Jesus. And it isn't just, um, it's, it's a quality of life that's unending. It's eternal life. And that's what we were designed for, what we were created for, was eternal communion with God. And as a result of sin and the corruption that entered in, we we're separated from God and have no life. And so what God wants us to do is he wants us to have life in him. So you would expect the upper room discourse as Jesus is summarizing in a very personal way what he's come to do, um, you would expect that to be very evident. Understanding who he is, faith in him, trust in him, and that you have life in him, that that trust is for uh, a good reason. So where were we at last week? Who would like to, I realized I was all over setting the scene last week to try and describe what's occurring in the Upper Room Discourse. Um, who can tell me about chapter 13 in John? I know Tim can. Well, I was just, uh, last week, I was saying where we're at and what, what did we find out when we read through chapter 13? What would you say chapter 13 is about? Daniel? Um, Jesus would die for everyone individually, even though we betray him repeatedly. So, so we, we see a story of betrayal in there. Right. The betrayal of Judas. Right, and then and Jesus died for him. And then you also have the betrayal, and then there's also the denial from Peter 
um, foretold in that, that part, yep. which is kind of which is kind of parallel with, with betrayal. It's like, oh yeah, no, I don't know him. What, um, I don't think personally, you know, it, from my experiential knowledge, that that's as bad as betraying someone outright. But it's still it's still just as bad when he does when he betrays him, and then Jesus looks at him and it cuts him. You know, it breaks him, which is important. And Judas was also broken, but he um, hung himself because he couldn't handle the shame, whereas Peter became the rock. Right. So, different responses. Right. Um, when you come into the light and your sin is made manifest. So, we're talking about 13. Yep, right. 13. Okay, so in my book, the, the first part is servant leadership. Yep. And yep. The, the last part is the duty. Yep, so you have the, the whole uh, uh, the washing of the disciples' feet, right? The whole idea of demonstrating what, uh, what we should be doing as citizens of the kingdom of God. Not only are we to have good character, not only are we to be people of integrity, um, people of truth, in whom is no lie, uh, but we're also to be serving others in that capacity. So we have that whole concept of servant uh, leadership that was demonstrated by Jesus. He said, just as I've done to you, you should do to others. We see the whole uh, piece about uh, betrayal and that Jesus loves even his enemies. And then he makes a command, a new commandment, right? So we, we have a set of commandments from the Old Testament um, what, what, is, what are those commandments? They are uh, descriptive. They are descriptive. Correct. You find them uh, talking about throughout the Old Testament, but you uh, especially see that uh, highlighted in Exodus, in the Exodus account, where we have what they call sometimes the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Um, I call them the Tender Commandments because as you study them, it really kind of shows the heart of God and how much He loves us and and that's a whole other study, so we're not going there. But we understand that that can also be codified and turned into a set of rules, religion, all the way through uh, Exodus and Leviticus um, and the whole tradition and festivals which were taken on by John, right? You remember, he had this whole organization around uh, the festivals and the traditions uh, of the Jewish religion. Well, that came right out of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They like to skip over numbers, which is where the people are really whiny and needed a lot of correction in, in their wandering times. Um, but nonetheless, you see that whole body of the law, and then Jesus comes along and he gives us a new commandment. What's the new commandment? Love one another. Trust is not love to you, that's the Yeah. Yep. That is the kicker. So, uh, let me quickly push through here. So we see that uh, in verse 34 it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Does that mean that you would lay down your life for someone who has wronged you, you know, repeatedly up to that point? It, 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 
could mean that, yeah. yeah. That's, that's uh, uh, the extreme, because you only have one opportunity of service like that. And we know, uh, we hear accounts of those who have done just that, just that very thing, that for no good reason, according to men, they have chosen to lay down their life for another. And we know that there are maybe some good reasons, like a mother for a child or a father for uh, his child, um, that sometimes those familial relationships um, will inspire someone to do something, put, their, put themselves in harm's way. But for no good reason, uh, there are people also that lay down their life. You know, I think of um, the incident that happened uh, several years back where there was a plane that crashed into the Potomac. It was coming into um, Washington, D.C. airport and it clipped a bridge and landed in the river and there were several people that survived, <clears throat> but they were in icy cold water. And there was a guy that was on the bridge and saw that happen. He jumped into the water and helped rescue some of the people that were in the icy water. He ended up perishing. The guy on the bridge, he didn't know anybody on that plane. I mean, he just happened to be there. Why do people do that? Love as you've been loved. Right? So that's a commandment. Um, so I, those are the three big themes that we see come out of chapter 13. And the way that I always uh, like to capture this is in the very first verse, says, now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. Or he loved them eternally. He loved them to the very end. <clears throat> that really, for me, kind of captures the whole of what we're going to see as we move through 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That... Jesus is pouring out his life personally into his disciples' lives. And it's going to permanently affect them. It's going to affect them in a way that even though they failed him in every way, there was only one of those who were with Jesus at this table that actually would be at the crucifixion. Does anybody know who that was? John. The others it scattered because their life might be required of them. They scattered when Jesus was arrested. Nobody would stand with him in the end. Right? Jesus knew that. Knowing that his hour had come, he still loved them to the uttermost. So that's setting the whole frame for the for the personal ministry of Christ. You know, I mentioned that it's kind of broken up in the main body into um, some called the Book of Miracles and this latter part, the Book of Glory, or the public ministry of Christ and the personal ministry of Christ. And I would lump the crucifixion uh, narrative in with that um, personal ministry because it was personally for everyone in this room that Christ died on that cross. It's more than just a public declaration of here's a great teacher. 
a rabbi or someone who completed the law of Judaism, but actually affects us every moment of our life. So it's the personal ministry of Christ. And we see that that takes um, three forms. One, it's him serving us. That he actually washed the feet of those that he had come to die for. Um, so verse 3 is getting me right now. Okay. Because <laughs> I have noticed it before. So Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands. Okay, now, mm -hmm. if I had realized that, I'd be going, yes! Yes! <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that's what I'd be going. But what does he do? He, he girds himself and he washes his disciples. Right. So this is a... Um, uh, the tense of this is not that it was that Jesus all of a sudden discovered it, but it's like a perfect tense where it was a past event with a continuing uh, result. And what I would say is that that past moment of knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands occurred on the Mount Hermon. So if you recall the story in Luke chapter 9, Jesus, um, he asks the question, who do men say that I am? And he got the response back of what the world was saying. Now some say you're a great teacher, some say you're a prophet, a great prophet. Um, some say that you're Elijah, right? Returned from the dead. And so they, they, uh, they gave what the world said. And I'm going to take you to I'll, I'll take you to Luke chapter 9, because this is a story where um, it starts out and uh, he sends his people out, and Herod, uh, the Tetrarch, hears about who uh, this guy Jesus is from those he sent out, right? Interesting how Herod hears of him. He says in verse 7, 9, uh, 9 and 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. That's what the world thought about Jesus. And so when he, on the, uh, if you take that a little bit further through the story here, you come to a place of personal ministry, where Jesus pulls off um, his twelve to a place called Caesarea Philippi, you see that in chapter 9, verse 18 of Luke. It says, And it happened while he was praying alone that the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered, Some said John the Baptist, others said Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. In other words, they repeat what the world is saying about Jesus. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, who we find out is going to deny Christ, right? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God, the Messiah. So, we understand that when people come into personal contact, so we, we, we have a whole lot of information, it all of a sudden moves into our personal life. It becomes part of us. It becomes personal. And we make a declaration like Peter did, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're God's, uh, God's gift to the world. 
that you are the expression of God's purpose from before creation. That's what we read about. That's what it means. Excuse me. That's what it means that he is the anointed one. That he is in some way special and unique. One of a kind. That's what the word only begotten translates to. The unique one. He's one of a kind in that he's fully man, but he's fully God. And when you come to understand that, you make that kind of a declaration. Jesus is the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Well, when he had heard that declaration, he pulled three of his guys off and went up the hill. The hill there is Mount Hermon. It's a pretty good, pretty good uh, hike uh, from where they were at, uh, 20, maybe 25 miles uh, up into the hills. They're going from an area that's just um, a little above sea level to an area that's about 9,000 feet. So, um, you know, it's a pretty good hike uphill. They get to this place, and while Jesus is praying, again, the disciples kind of fall asleep. And it's Peter, John, and James. And they fall asleep. And Jesus is transfigured, is the account that you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, you read the same account that Mark says that his the transformation of Jesus was so profound that it made his clothes whiter than the whitest white that you can imagine. If you took your brightest t-shirt, I have white t-shirts, right? And you bleached it, pure bleach, right? That didn't dissolve it. It turned into this brilliant white, right? It was brighter than that. It was brighter than anybody could launder this thing. And that his whole became so bright and his face was transformed. And that he was then standing there talking to Moses and Elijah. So that tells us a couple things. One, there's life after death. Because he's talking with two that had passed into, into the afterlife. So their corruptible body had been laid down and they took on incorruption in heaven. And Jesus is standing there talking to him, and all of a sudden Peter wakes up and it's like, whoa, dude, he was seeing heaven opened in front of him. That's what he saw. And the result of what he saw is like, I want this to continue forever. Let me build tents for you guys so you can stay. Serious. That's what he says, because he doesn't know what else to say. He wants that to continue, because that is heaven on earth. And he sees it with his own eyes. And at that moment, a cloud comes over, and God speaks from the cloud, or a fog, like this morning, if you're coming in from Babylon, <laughs> coming through orchards, or not orchards, Rush Prairie. And... and the voice speaks out of the cloud, this is my son, listen to him. Now, pay attention. This is the one whom I have chosen. This is my Messiah. In that moment, Jesus goes from a transfigured state. He is the perfect man. He knows the Father perfectly. And there is no sin in him. He could have stepped from where he was at into eternity and taken his place by the Father's side. But he didn't. He stayed. And he helps Peter wrestle with this. That even though heaven had come to earth, 
there was a, a larger purpose of God. And that he was not a different person, even though he didn't see him in his perfection, in his glory. But rather, he was a determined person to bring all to glory. So what happened is, is he went down the mountain from the highest point of his ministry, literally, geographically, down into the valley. And he heals a boy that is demon-possessed. And what happens is, is that the, the boy um, is so caught up with the possession that he will gnash at the teeth and foam at the mouth and throw himself into a fire and be injured, right? And his father says, I've taken him to all the physicians and they can't help him. Now, our modern day science would say, well, the kid's got epilepsy. Jesus could see epilepsy and he could have healed the boy from a disease or an imperfection. But that wasn't what the problem was. The problem was is that the boy was actually demon-possessed. The problem with humanity is one of demon possession. And we don't like to think about it like that, but what happened back in the Garden of Eden? What happened there? Sin entered in. The father of lies told a lie and we believed it and continued to believe it and started telling it ourselves. That's, that's what the natural state of man is today. Is in a place of total depravity where Satan rules. We call him the, the prince of the air. Right? We understand that even though we were um, given delegated kingship over God's creation, that we were to be the stewards of that which God created, that was usurped by the, by the serpent. We were deceived. So the problem that Jesus was healing was one of corruption. And immediately after he heals this boy from demon possession, he again declares his purpose, that he came to die on the cross in Jerusalem. And you read right after that in Luke, um, if you go through the account there, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, nothing was going to deter him from his purpose. That's what this verse is saying. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was able to stand in the Father's presence, that he had received everything that would come as a perfect human, and that he had come forth from God, <clears throat> was going back to God. That's how much he loved us, that he came down from the mountain. You know? that he would not only come down from the mountain, but he would, being the king, the true king, <clears throat> would take off the robe of the king and would put a towel around his waist, which is the, the uh, garment of a servant. And then he would then go through and he would wash the feet of those that were there. Even his enemy, who he knew, he would wash his feet. And he would offer him life. And that's what, that's what he did for Judas. He offered him life. He gave him a, a bread dipped. He's giving the bread of life to Judas. And what does Judas do? He runs off into the dark. That's what we read. 
we read that, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to jump ahead to verse 27 uh, of chapter 13 of John. It says, After the morsel, Satan entered in him, that is Judas. Therefore Jesus said, said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing that Judas had the money box. In other words, he was in a position of authority within the group. And then Jesus was saying to him, buy the things um, we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. <coughs> it was night. It was dark. Judas, having just gone through the whole of what the revelation of, of Jesus as the Christ was about, that he had had his feet washed by the king, and given life, the bread of life, ran out into the dark. So you see all of that in 13. You see what servant leadership really looks like. That someone is willing to lay down their life, willing to give up everything that they think they own to do that which God's will commands. And that um, there will be some who reject that. But God is not surprised, but loves them too. And that the result of that is that we, as citizens of the kingdom of God, should be as he is. God said, be holy, for I am holy. Right? And here he's saying, you love as I love. In fact, if you love as I love, everybody will know by looking at you in your life that you're one of my disciples. <clears throat> It'll be really clear. You won't be able to hide it. You won't be able to put your life into a bushel basket. Right? That's what chapter 13 is about. <clears throat> so, that brings us to chapter 14. Did I hit the, the things in chapter 13 that you wanted to talk about? I guess before we go on to 14. So, servant leadership. Does that help you, Tim? Or what other verses jump off the page for you in 13 before we move to 14? Because 14 contains one of the, the verses, I think it's my favorite verse, because it's the most descriptive of... Um, I think it's key to John next to his 2031. The way the truth and the light. The way the truth and the light. Mm -hmm. Yep, 14.6. That's where we're headed. So Jesus is still in this personal ministry. I don't think it's kind of strange here. It seems strange anyway. When the question is asked to Jesus, who is this who's going to betray you? And Jesus explicitly says, the guy I'm going to give this to yeah. is the betrayer. He yeah. doesn't. Yes. And then people are mystified when he says, which people pick the guy leaves. Yes. It just seems kind of odd. It does seem odd. Options. So, um, that he would be able to give that to Judas means that Judas was seated at the position of uh, high regard. He was an honored guest at the table. Um, so, number one, Judas, <clears throat> we think of Judas in this terrible light. Judas was actually um, one of the great 
of the twelve. He was he was so great that they made him the treasurer, the guy that held the bag of money. And he was the go-to guy, right? So they thought, well, maybe he's going to to that there was this was a Passover meal. And part of the tradition of Passover meal is that they would go out and give uh, gifts to widows and orphans so they would care for the community. That was part of Passover. Because Passover was like you invite everybody into your house and you eat the whole meal and nothing is left. Right? So, and, and we understand that when they went out from there, the Egyptians gave them great gifts. And so this is giving back. I mean, if you take that whole story and you look at it, that's how this tradition emerged, that they would give gifts to those that were less fortunate in the community. So some thought, oh, maybe he's going out to get a gift. Or maybe he's going out to get something that's necessary for us to continue the feast. So because he was in, held in that position of, of honor among the twelve. That Jesus had said that and that they still didn't get it shows you how much they were blinded by the persona that Judas presented. So he was a good poser. You ever thought that maybe Jesus just whispered that to John? John was leaning on Jesus' breast. He was always by his side. So he leans over and says, Who oh, is it, Lord? Nobody heard it. Jesus whispers back, Yeah. I think it's someone I'm going to give this piece of bread to. Nobody <laughs> else heard it. Well, it, 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 it could be that. that in verse uh, 25. Yeah, that disciple leaning uh, mm-hmm. back against Jesus said to him, Lord, Lord. Yeah. So it may be that only John heard it. It could be that only John heard it. Yeah. So, he was one of those on the table and nobody had a clue at the table. Right. Yeah. John, John didn't say, oh, he's going out to betray Jesus. That's why I want you to hear In fact, Peter, he told Peter what was going on. Because Peter asked him, said, hey, John, ask him, who's this guy? And then, so, so Peter would have known too. Right? So there's at least two that knew. Um, but it could be that it wasn't, you know, there were some that didn't know or didn't catch it when uh, when it was uttered, um, whether it was low volume or whatever. If it was me and I'd been sitting at the table and there had been the clanking additions, I wouldn't have heard it because that's the way my hearing is. But um, So we, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Judas knew it. Judas knew what was going down. He had already purposed in his heart and when he decided to act, it said Satan entered in. And that's that's what's going on there. Um, so in 14, verse um, 14 says, uh, If I then the Lord and the teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So I think that's linked with the new commandment, love one another. Yes. So what, I, what I've been asking myself here is, washing the feet was a slave's job mm-hmm. in that culture. So when somebody came to your house and you're walking around with sandals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. um, they didn't want to get the dirt, I guess, all over the, the house. You know? So somebody would, I don't know if they took their sandals off or what, you know, but anyway, you know, somebody washed their feet. So what, this was probably the most menial thing 
you know, that, uh, yes. that Jesus could have done. I mean, and this is kind of why he did it. Right. So in our culture today, I mean, what's the most menial thing? I mean, what, what, would, what would be a, a related thing? We can't really relate to this, right? Because they all hang around in sandals and we don't walk in there. We're in cars. Right, right. So, but, but the point wasn't that. The point was, you know, love one another and do the very basic menial thing. So, can, can you think of an example? Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the things I know from my travels is that um, Americans are very concerned about bathrooms. <laughs> Serious. Go to another country, you'll find out where the bathroom ranks. It is something that everybody, uh, we're all human, right? And so we all, all need to have relief as part of our physic, physical beings, right? Americans are really uptight about bathrooms and everything associated with bathrooms, right? That's why we get bathroom humor. <laughs> no, serious. Uh, a lot of countries, it's totally lost. They just don't get it. Um, but in America, it is. Who's the guy when the toilet is plugged that unplugs the toilet? He's washing your feet. There's your servant. And I point out, he's the only one in the room with a tile. <laughs> I know that's atypical. Uh, that, that is a very classic example where we don't even see that person because it is a, a, a job in our culture that is not even to be looked at. That's what washing a person's foot in that culture was about. You don't want to even make eye contact with this person. They're a servant. Not only that, but they're probably the serv servants of servants. Right? So it's a, definitely a lowly position. And that's what Jesus was saying he did. Now here is the one who, by right, um, is the king of all. Right? All things were created by him and through him and for him. We understand that he took on the form of a man. We read that in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Right? So look, turn to Philippians chapter 2. It gives you... Uh, a a greater heart for what is being said about the servant and, and how we are commanded to be like him. Um, because this is Paul's writing uh, to be like Jesus. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll back it up to verse 3 in chapter 2 of Philippians. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was, he was not um, taking something that wasn't his. He already was there. He wasn't usurping God or, or trying to take the throne like Satan did. It was his by right. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. You know what a bondservant is? So in the Jewish culture, a servant um, could be a servant for a number of reasons. They may have had a debt that they needed to work off. 
might have been their job in the way that we think of jobs, right? Um, and in that sense, slavery was a kind of employment, right? But at the end of uh, the debt, when you earned your wage, you could, out of love, commit yourself to serve that person for the rest of your life. And what they would do is they would take your earlobe and they put it up next to the doorpost and they punch it all through it. Or it through. Yeah, so you became a, a, a marked person. And that, that was called a bond servant. That you were owned for life. That you had given your life to that other person. That's what he did. He took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness, of, the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was that always a voluntary thing? Or Pardon? The bond part? Was that always voluntary? Always voluntary, yep. There was no, uh, if you, and so this is where you have to have freedom in order to submit. Choose. Yeah, in order to choose. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. In other words, he wants you because you want him. He doesn't want you because he created you and you're a robot. He wants you to be a bondservant in the same way that he is your bondservant. That he would lay down his life for you, that's what he wants you to do. Lay down your life for him. And that's what it says in Luke chapter 9, by the way, when it talks about the cost of discipleship. That you would deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow him. Right? So that, that's the cost of discipleship. To become a follower of Christ is not cheap. It takes all that you've got. But there is no greater place to be than in God's presence. That's what David said. He said, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. So a doorkeeper is like a foot washer. And yet right. it's kind of like in God's kingdom, even the lowly, what we would think in the world, lowly positions, they're actually very valuable and just the same. Because, great because, because they're, they're all, all necessary. in. We all need it. That's right. They're all in and they're willing to give all. And, and that's the one that I want uh, beside me, you know. I want one, so um, to use a soldier's uh, analogy here, when I'm in the battle and I'm in the thick of it, I want to be able to look to my right to my left, and I want to see those that are all in. That's the picture in Ephesians chapter 6. You read Ephesians chapter 6, because this is, um, this is what what it looks like in our daily lives. Okay? I'm going to start in, uh, in verse 10, chapter 6 of Ephesians. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places pretty descriptive of that spiritual battle that's going on. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm, stand fast. In other words, we're called to battle. The war is won. That doesn't mean there's not a battle still going on. 
the battle, the war was won on Easter morning when Christ publicly showed himself to the world as the resurrection that he had conquered death. It was a public proclamation of that which had been foretold, which God had declared before uh, man fell, that he would redeem the lost and that he would conquer death. And he did. So the war was won on that day. We are no longer held by death. Therefore, we are no longer hopeless, is what it says in Hebrews. We are no longer without hope. Because we know that we will be as he is. So when he appears a second time, we will be as he is. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. He is our very life. But the battle still goes on. And if you don't believe that, come on out to my house and work with me for a day. I'll make you really sore, and you'll understand the battle that's going on. That's the trivial battle. There is a very serious battle that goes on where sometimes people end up giving their life because the world is definitely lost and in darkness, and we suffer that. So the battle is still going on. When that happens, it says here, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then he goes on and describes what that armor is. But I imagine in that moment, that, that hillside battle scene, where you're thick in the battle, you're resisting in the evil day, and you look to your right, and you look to your left, and those shining helmets beside you are your battle buddies. Those are the ones who have given all, just as you have given all. That's who I want with me in the trench. That's who I want with me to stand on that final day. That's why we come to church, by the way. Um, because this community is about uh, standing with one another. You know, we talk about what membership means in this church. It means more than just a legal requirement that this church can be registered for tax exemption in the state of Washington and in the, the U.S. It means more than that. Because in order to be a tax-exempt organization, you have to have members if you're a church. Right, so they, I don't care what kind of church it is, a community church or whatever, they might count everybody that walked in the door, remember? We don't do that. We say, this is our family. We want you to come into the family. And guess what? We're going to stand with you to the very end. That's a covenant. And that's what Jesus is asking. He's asking us to love one another as he has loved us. Incredibly powerful. I, I probably went overboard again, sorry. <laughs> Other questions on 13? The, the one thing I would say um, when Jesus gave the bread of life to Judas. You'll read, he says, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. It's important that we know and believe in the only way that we can come into communion with God. No one believed God's plan of salvation. No one believed God's king brought about salvation through his 
giving his life. That's where we are right now. So where these folks were at, they were in the, an upper room. I mentioned that was probably part of uh, Barnabas's household. Barnabas being a disciple, although probably like Nicodemus, kept it undercover because of fear of the Jews. They held the, the um, what's sometimes called the Last Supper there. They held this Passover meal. And then, as part of the Passover liturgy, they left that um, room and they walked through the Temple Mount, out the Eastern Gate, and across uh, the Kidron Valley up to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And what you will read in the next three chapters is that walk what happens up to the point where they get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus again goes off in prayer to pray for his disciples. And it's also the greatest trial of Jesus' life because this is the last moment that he has from having walked off the mountain at Mount Hermon all the way to Jerusalem. This is the last moment he has to take a different course. You've got to remember, he's fully human. So all of that weight is coming down on him to the point where in his prayer, he actually, it, it appears as the sweat pouring off him is as blood. Right? That's where, that's where this ends in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I know we only have a few minutes, but I'd like to read uh, at least part of chapter 14 for you. Says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and 
will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to me and make our abode with him. And we will come to him, excuse me, and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things to bring, your, bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejected. You would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let's go from here. That's when he gets up and they get out across the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're at uh, ten fifteen. <laughs> Karen says we're done. She already sewed up a Bible. Um, so in all of this, in the the heavy gravity of what Jesus has done disclosed and commanded in what we see as the, uh, that supper that occurred. Um, the whole servant leadership, the whole dying for your enemies, um, the whole uh, being commanded to love as he loves. When they, they had experienced this, Peter had been told that he's going to deny Christ. He's not going to stand, and he's, he's the rock of the group. Nonetheless, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And uh, depending on your translation, it may say, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, um, depending on how you look at the variance, uh, so every uh, line of scripture um, has through, as the way it's been preserved, they'll have variant readings. Um, so one of the variant readings is, you already believe in God, believe in me. Another would be a, uh, an imperative. Believe in God, believe in me. In other words, understanding it's fully God, it's fully man. That's a hard thing to get your head around. Right? Um, and that's, but when you get your head around it, um, your troubles go away. Your fear is relieved. You know the plan of God. 
I'm going to leave you with this little um, nugget for next week. I just mentioned that there are variant readings throughout the Greek manuscripts. Over 20,000 different manuscripts make up what we call our New Testament, uh, preserved from little tiny scraps of paper of which the oldest found was out of chapter 18 of John, a little papyrus, P51, um, all the way up to complete codices. Right? 20,000 different documents make this up, and you can imagine, as scribes are, and, and monks and other people that are less educated are copying this over and over and over again, mistakes happen. So there are errors of transmission, there are errors of um, where they make a margin note that gets inserted in. There's a whole analysis associated with what makes up the Bible. There's one verse here in the New Testament, there's more than one, but there's one really significant one that has zero variants. Zero variant readings. And that's verse 6, chapter 14 of John. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I say that there are no variant readings in that verse to help understand the certainty that we can know that this is a true statement. So either Jesus is a liar telling you something that he knows to be untrue. Or he's totally nuts and that he believes he's Messiah, but he's not. Or he in fact is. He is the Lord. So liar, lunatic, or Lord. Um, there's no variant reading here. What do you do with that? And what does it mean that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? Let's go ahead and close here. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come to your word this morning. Um, there's so much in here that challenges us. The whole idea of um, completely giving ourselves to you as disciples, completely giving ourselves to your church. Um, to love as you've loved is uh, an incredible command that we can't do in our own strength. And we know that you give us strength, that you strengthen us through your very spirit. We know that you strengthen us by uh, instructing us. We know that you strengthen us uh, through the trials in our lives, that it makes us stronger as we go through trials. Lord, uh, we know that you strengthen us by your very presence in the moments uh, that are the darkest in our life. We know that you're there. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, um, we ask that you be with us today, a beautiful day. We ask that you be with Bob as he shares your word this morning. Um, as he's moving through Luke towards the crucifixion account that occurred um, and recorded there, and the resurrection, Lord, which is the great promise to us and our hope. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We ask that you be with Bob as he shares your word, that your word will go out and accomplish that for which you purposed it to do. Lord, we ask that you uh, protect us. It's a crazy world that you provide for us and that, uh, Lord, that you help us to serve as you've so incredibly served us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all this we pray in your name. Amen.